The reading for today is from Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Happy Father's Day. If you're new, my name is Frank. Glad that you are here. Um, how many of you, strange way to start church, how many of you um, watch The Office or have watched The Office? Okay, I, I would imagine most hands would go up. I kind of feel like Stanley today because it's, it's Father's Day, which means it's Mustache Pretzel Day. I remember how excited Stanley would get about Pretzel Day at the, at the you know, the office park. Okay, never mind. I'm done. So, <laughs> Anyway, we have mustache pretzels out there. They haven't been uncovered yet, but Jackie's going to uncover them at the end of this service. So now you're all thinking, yeah, please be done right now, please, because uh, anyway, so mustache pretzels. A uh, couple things before we get started. Um, I know it's always fun for me to do one or two sermons before the sermon. That's always uh, helpful, I know. But um, first of all, uh, Cody mentioned this as he was talking this idea that people come together on Sundays, mornings or our 5 o'clock evening service, from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, many different backgrounds, uh, yet we're coming for this one common understanding, which should be the most important thing in our lives, and that's Christ, that we are one in Him, we are a body. Um, I, it's interesting because just this week, I've been doing this a long time, but for some reason this week, I've been really struggling with thinking about how I feel about Sundays. Uh, the, the emotions that I go through as a pastor on Sunday, um, I, I, they've always been there, and, and I've always just sort of tried to move past it. I always thought it had to do with this idea of public speaking and the anxiety that comes with that. But I began to realize, and then Cody really, I think, solidified it or sparked something in me this morning. Um, it's, it's not anxiety. Um, there may be a little bit of that mixed in. And, and it's not really excitement, although there's a little bit of that mixed in as well. It's something that's, that's hard to articulate, but it has to do with this. Um, the vast majority of people in here, I, I recognize not everybody in here would claim to be a Christ follower. I get that. And we are honored that you are here, if that's you. And, and we are filled with joy that, that God is calling you unto him and that you've chosen Redemption Arcadia to maybe investigate that. And, and I pray that we steward that well. But for the vast majority of us, we would claim to know Christ. And, and to be once a week in this huge community with people who have been saved and redeemed by our loving Father through his Son and then filled with his Holy Spirit, and, and, and in that, we can all look to the same hope and the same understanding and the same worldview of life is a tremendously significant thing that I hope I articulated somewhat well just now. It's hard to really articulate. And so it's a privilege to be a part of that. And it's, and it's something that I, I, I guess I could say I do look forward to every Sunday that I get to do this, that God has called me to this. So uh, thank you for that and indulging in that. And then the other thing is, Cody mentioned Father's Day. And Father's Day, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, these are, these are holidays that, you know, the cynical side of me says, well, you know, 
um, a bunch of uh, corporations got together and said, here's how we're going to make some money. And uh, okay, so, and now if you don't honor your father or mother, mother, then there's something wrong with you and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, and, and we, we don't tend to think about um, how sometimes it can be, these can be kind of painful days. I mean, when, when my wife's mother passed away way too early, she was 61 when she passed away. Mother's Day has been very difficult for Jackie ever since. Um, my parents lived long, long time. Um, some of you, your fathers are gone, and so there's that, that you kind of feel like, well, that's it. Others of you have strained relationships, or you maybe don't even know who your father was. Others of you have wonderful fathers who have been great examples in your life, and, 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 I, and I, that's wonderful as well. Um, I would like us to consider looking at days like today, Father's Day, with some level of hope, though, and to remember that um, we talked about this a few weeks ago at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, that God is able to do far more abundantly than you and I could ever ask or imagine. And even if your father's gone, it may not be the end of the story, but I I will just tell you that that was true in my life. Uh, I've been a Christian 31 years. About 28 years ago, my father, who was not a Christian, uh, we did not speak to each other for four years, and we lived a mile away from each other. Now, I know there was no social media 28 years ago, but nevertheless, we had ways that we could communicate with each other, and we chose not to for four years. And slowly, somehow, the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of both of us. We eventually reconciled. And then the most amazing thing happened uh, a number of years later when he was 85 years old. He was 85 years old, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior and spent the last nine years of his life as a Christian. 94, he passed away. This is three years ago this month. And so I know that's hard for some of you because you're like, okay, so your story of redemption is complete. Mine isn't quite yet complete. But I tell you that story to say there is hope in Christ, genuine, beautiful hope, and these stories are not over with, and and the call is to remain rooted in Christ because that's the only true hope that we have in the midst of this. So thanks for indulging me uh, on that. Um, Now the third sermon for today. So um, we've been going through Ephesians, we're in the second half of Ephesians now. Uh, the praxis or the practical application of the gospel. These two verses that we look at today, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, are a continuation of what Paul said last week, verses 7 through 14. And they are especially uh, a continuation of his thought in verse 14, how we kind of wrapped up last week, that idea of being tossed to and fro. And the reason we know that it's a continuation of his thought from last week is because he uses that connector word at the very beginning of chapter 15, rather. So that word signals to us rhetorically that he's setting up a comparison and a contrast to what he just said. So rather than being, verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves carried out by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, rather than living that life, we must... Grow up in every way into Jesus Christ, who is our head. We must grow up in every way. In every way, we must grow up. 
into Jesus, into Him, nothing else, not into any other identity that we can construct. And what Paul is talking about here, the, the, sort of the, the, the text behind the text, is he's defining for us what true maturity is, what it means to be grown up, not physically, but emotionally, spiritually, in terms of our understanding. Uh, he's saying, a continuation of what we talked about last week, that it's time for us to put away the milk bottle approach to our faith. If, if you're somebody who's known Christ for decades, but you're still sucking on the milk rather than looking to the meat of the gospel, we have some work to do. And that's what he's calling us to. And uh, sort of a little bit of a regression. I've got a big idea today. Haven't had one for a while. Here you go. Here it is. To be mature in Christ, to grow up into Christ, we must first and foremost embrace our identity in Christ. First and foremost. There is no disconnect, bifurcation, or divergence between growing up into Christ and our identity in Christ. That's the key to this whole thing. Now, this idea of maturity, I think we talk about it a lot, um, just in, in you know, the world. Um, we use the word a lot, but, but rarely do you ever hear people defining it or or trying to measure maturity. Have you ever tried to measure maturity? I mean, it's, I guess, suppose it's easy to do that physically. I'm kind of mature now. Been around 59 years. But does that really define what maturity, good maturity is? I can be 59 years old and still be an infant in the way I think, in my emotions, in my spiritual life. Um, we had, 11, we, 11 days ago, at our preaching collective... Um, we had a thoroughgoing discussion. One of the pastors brought this up. How do we even define or measure maturity? And it was like, that's a good question to ask. And, and so here's this room full of uh, 12 or 14 pastors who, who are thinking about this. And, and we came up with, first of all, four, gen there's probably more, but four general ways that we think the world defines maturity and measures maturity incorrectly. And here they are. Number one, uh, we measure immaturity or define it through moral or virtue lists. In other words, all of us try to keep some kind of a code. We all have this sort of code that we live by so that we can say that we're a good person, we understand right from wrong, um, and, and, and so whatever that code is, and usually we're the ones that construct the code, even though there are other codes out there, yes, even Dexter constructed a code, and he had trouble keeping that, for those of you who have, never mind. All right, so, um, but generally it's all about virtue, and so we define maturity through virtue. Not a good definition. Here's another one, knowledge. Well, I just get knowledge. If I just study and acquire knowledge... Okay, here's the problem with that. You may have a ton of knowledge but have absolutely no wisdom and that knowledge is not leading you to any sort of action. So you can have a ton of knowledge and all you are is a fathead baby. That's all you are. And that's not maturity. But we define it that way. I got, I got all kinds of college degrees. Yeah, but you struggle with the basic relationships of life. That's a problem. Another one is self-love. <laughs> okay, we could do 10 weeks on this whole goofy concept of self-love, which is just absolutely out of control, okay? Um, but just to give you a little bit of an idea, first of all, 
Uh, those of you who are really into this idea of I've got to love myself, I've got to figure out how to love myself, I've got, I got to love myself first before I can do anything else. Self-love, self-love, self-love. First of all, let me ask you this question. How do you know when you've arrived? Has anybody ever defined that? How do you know when you're at that point where, okay, I am now perfectly holistic in my self-love? I've never met that person. Never met that person. And here's the second question. This is, this is the one that sociologists and psychologists are talking about the most, generally, our understanding of self-love is really unhealthy. It's not what's best for you. You have this idea that you need to love yourself, but it's in a really unhealthy and unhelpful way. So how do you know when you've ever arrived, and how do you know if it's even what's good for you or healthy? It's not maturity. And then the last one was these various cultural measuring sticks. Last week, we talked about Josh Butler's uh, book, Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, He defines it this. He says, standards for moral applause. We're mature if we can get other people to affirm us in some way, whether through social media or at a party in the public sphere, whatever that is. So then, okay, so those are kind of the incorrect ways. What are, what are the correct ways? What are the ways of wisdom when it comes to defining maturity? Well, here you go. This is where it gets a little tough. Are we truly humble? Do we practice humility? Do we love well? Do we love in a biblical way? Do we love those who are really hard to, to love? Uh, are we gentle? Uh, Now, here you go. Not weak. (laughs) Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is the picture of Christ on the cross. He could have gotten off that cross at any moment and pinched the heads off of those Roman centurions who were crucifying him, but he didn't. So are we gentle? I know the image of Christ pinching the head off somebody. I know that's (laughs) happy Father's Day. Do we practice patience and empathy? Are we people who endure and persevere? Are we long-suffering? That's kind of the biblical word. And do we value gospel-centered community and relationships? So consider those things as we dive in. Let me just reread this. We'll unpack it, and then we'll try to apply it. So verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, truth in love, hmm, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I want you to think, uh, although these two verses are a comparison and contrast to what he just wrote, especially in verse 14, we should also, also recognize that these two verses, Paul starts with and ends with love. These two verses are bookended by this concept of biblical, Christ-like love. Paul wants us to see that these, in these two verses, that when it comes to growth, love is a means to growth, it is evidence of growth, and it is the result of growth. It's an important means to growth, it is evidence that we have grown, and it also ends up as results in our life of of growth. So, let's get a little bit more specific. Look very closely at verse 15. You might ask this question, I did, how does speaking the truth in love lead us to growing up in Christ? Well, 
the truth that Paul is speaking of here specifically is what Paul gets at in the next eight verses, which we look at next week, next Sunday. It's the fact that as followers of Jesus, we can no longer allow our minds to be darkened by the futility of worldly cultural wisdom, especially the world's concept of love. Our wisdom now comes from God, His Word, the working of the body, the church, even though it's imperfect, I get that, and our humble submission to God's will. Our humble submission to God's will. We are to, as Paul says next week, we are to put off the old, the old wily ways of the world that has convinced us of its wisdom, and we are to put on the new, which is Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know this is really challenging, but I pray that you'll at least ponder this. Just think about this. Though culture claims to lead you and I to success if we would just follow it, Ultimately, culture always sets us up for failure. Cultural, culture claims the people who endorse this worldly wisdom, they claim that if you just follow it, it'll lead you to success, but ultimately, it just sets you up for failure. It's, it's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It's chasing after stuff that's constantly shifting and that's never really there when you get there. There's no there there. Culture is constantly calling us to pursue the wrong thing. Here you go. What culture tells us will bring us fulfillment and meaning and redemption is like an empty cake. There's icing on the outside, and inside it's just air. There's nothing there. So growing up into Christ and finding our identity solely in Christ is done really through two major elements of the gospel, and that's, and Paul says it, truth and love. And the two go together. We need to remember that. And sometimes I forget. I admit it. I'm still struggling with this. It's hard for me. Uh, Paul reminds us here that the truth of Jesus and the gospel, while beautiful and reliable, is not to be used on, as a sledgehammer on people. And, and we shouldn't be using Bible verses to proof text our own behavior and our own thought. The gospel is much more beautiful than just that. Um, truth needs to be tempered by love. That's what Paul is saying. But he's also saying this. Love without truth is impotent. It's meaningless. You have to have both, truth and love. And so there's tension there. <laughs> well, how much truth and how much love? Where's that line? Where's that line? Here you go. This will help you figure this out. The line is constantly moving. <laughs> You're never going to be able to just define that line, walk away, and know that it's always going to be right there. The line is constantly moving depending on who you're talking to, how they hear and see what you're saying, where they're standing, what their perception and their perspective is, what's, what are the contextual factors that are surrounding you, and how well can we submit to and trust the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a moving line to me. It's constantly moving, so you have to constantly try and practice. Like I said, I've been doing this for years, and I still struggle. Sometimes I push too far and go across that line. Sometimes I don't get anywhere near the line. I need to be closer to the line. But no matter what, I'm called to remain in the game, to keep pushing, keep trying. 
and, and rely on the Holy Spirit for his wisdom in the midst of this and the word of God. But here's something that I think is really interesting. While you and I may struggle, certainly, with finding that balance between truth and love, and to be able to do it commendably, the one we follow, the one who saves us, he embodies both of those perfectly. Now, I know he's God. (laughs) We're not. But he does it perfectly. He does it perfectly. Truth and love. He's not 50% truth, 50%. He's 100% of both. And he does it perfectly. But here's what's really wild. Think about this as you read through the Gospels. He seemed quite often to cross the line on both. (laughs) Think about that. He was always crossing. Again, I know he's God. We're not. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to cross. But he crossed the line all the time. Think about love. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Really? That sounds to me like you just crossed the line, Jesus. How about the woman at the well? Remember his disciples, they didn't say it exactly this way, but essentially what they were doing, what, what are you doing? You're crossing a line here, Jesus. You shouldn't even be talking to her. But he was loving the woman at the well. How about the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John? Every person there except the woman thought that he had crossed the line of love. Every one of them. And, and, and what about Peter after his betrayal? I would have, you know, Peter, why don't you just go pound sand, buddy? We spent three years together, and then you denied me, you know? And as for truth, let me just say, you really didn't want to be a Pharisee around Jesus. You know, if Jesus says to you, woe to you, that might be a problem in your life. (laughs) And what are Pharisees? They're professional religious people, man. What about, what about the rich young ruler who believed that his righteousness was self-made? He got a dose of truth from Jesus as well. And, and I don't think you wanted to be a vendor in the temple when Jesus got a little riled up because you might be on the receiving end of a whip. Your tables might be overturned. It's, it's just interesting to think about. Now look at verse 16. Paul insists that the way of growth into Christ is for the body, all of us, to work together, empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit, each doing his or her part. Each one of us has a part in this. And depending on your season of life and how you've been gifted, you're going to have a different part. And the part you play right now may be different than the part you play in five years, and it might be different than the one you played five years ago. Uh, I'm sorry to do this to you. You don't have to turn there. But I want to read, I mentioned this last week, I want to read portions of 1 Corinthians 12 to you, this whole idea of how the body works together. One of these iconic chapters of Scripture that we should be going back to over and over again. It'll be up on the, on the screen, but you, you can turn and follow. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to not understand how this works, he says. Skip down to verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Do you sense a theme here? Different. There's diversity. I know I hate that word, diversity. But there's diversity. 
but there's one. There's unity, and it's because of God. God even manifests this unity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Verse 7, um, to each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For my own affirmation and self-esteem. No, it's for the good of the community. It's for the good of the body, for the common good. And then verses 8 through 11, he lists more gifts. They're, some of them are different than the ones we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 4. And they're different than Romans 12. But there's different gifts. And then we get down to 12, and he says, here's how it works together. And he uses this metaphor of the body. It's beautiful. For just as, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. I have many members of this body, feet, arms, eyes, one nose, but one body, okay? For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the, this, and now, this, people reading this in the first century would have laughed at this. This is kind of humorous, okay? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? This is why it's troublesome when one person in the church decides the entire church needs to be about one ministry other than Jesus. That's a problem, and we push back against that, Okay? Um, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then he looks at it a little bit in a little bit different way. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Here you go. What you see in the church, for instance, on Sunday during service, you see the music, you see the children's ministry, you see, you see me preaching, okay? None of this happens without all kinds of people working, who are gifted by the Spirit, working behind the scenes. None of this happens. And they're the ones that deserve as much or more honor than those of us who are, quote, up front. Do you understand that? That's what Paul is saying here. It's really important to understand that. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of, the, of Christ and individually members of it. That's just beautiful teaching. So the whole body's growth, and each of us individually in the body, Paul is saying, um, ultimately comes from Christ as head. It all flows from him. But the body and each individual grows as each one in the body does its apportioned part. 
we have to be a part of this body to experience the growth. I can be a Christian and not be a part of a church. No, you can't. No, you can't. Find me the verse, you can't find it. If you're not a part of a body, and by the way, be a part of, I'm, this is not a Redemption Arcadia advertisement. This is just saying that you don't understand your faith if you think you can be a Christian without being a part of a body. It's integral to being a Christian, and that's where growth happens. And this is a, this is a truth that, and, and practicality we simply can't escape. Here you go. Church mavericks often look fun and gather crowds, but ultimately they're unsustainable. And one of the reasons this is true is because of the lack of love needed when maverick individualism is embraced. If you're all by yourself, you never have to work on love. How convenient would that be? Which also means, though, that you never grow. If you're never challenged, you're never going to grow. And in 1 Corinthians 12, after that, Paul goes into his chapter 13 track on love and how it's only manifested. Love can only be manifested in community and relationship in the body. And it all comes from and flows into Christ. It's important to understand. Love and growth are both from and up into Jesus Christ. And that love, of course, comes from the unconditional selfless love of Christ going to the cross. So, it is essential. It is non-negotiably essential that in order to love like Christ and to be a part of the body of Christ, we must always find our identity in Christ because he's the head, flows from and into. His identity is led by truth and love. Uh, New Testament scholar Max Turner, uh, writing about these two verses, writes this. Uh, The follower of Christ must no longer be trapped in the immaturity of infancy. In other words, falling prey to every worldly and cultural pressure, but must pursue growing up toward the maturity of the faith that is the very likeness of an identity in Christ. So, this closing discussion that I want to have this morning has to do with further unpacking this this understanding of, of growing up into Christ from verse 15 and not just growing up into the current cultural tenets. Uh, I finished a book a couple of weeks ago, actually about, about a month ago now, um, that Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor over all 10 congregations, recommended. It's called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this book. I couldn't put it down, number one. Uh, number two, it's written by Bradley Manning and Jason, I'm sorry, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. They are not Christians, and they are not rightists, if you understand what I'm getting at there, uh, both are professors of psychology, PhDs in psychology at major universities. And let me tell you something, they have caught a lot of flack for this book. Even though their, their research and, and, and their arguments are absolutely impeccable and all of the data supports what they're saying, they're really getting attacked a lot for what they've, what they've come up with. But it was absolutely fascinating. And, and just a brief overview to get us into this discussion, what they start with is sort of a, an understanding of the, of the various um, sort of predominant macro cultures we've had in the United States over the last couple hundred years. The first one is the honor culture. We don't live in an honor culture anymore. We did 250 years ago, though. 
An honor culture is primarily characterized by personal reputation. That's a big deal, your personal reputation. And your personal reputation is so highly valued that there's a high value placed on protecting your reputation yourself, even if it means, and sometimes especially if it means, violence. So they talked about how dueling was a big part of the honor cult. Dueling. Read your history books. There's a lot of dueling going on 200, 250 years ago in the United States. Yeah, you get into an argument, all right, let's take it outside. Take it outside didn't mean that you were going to throw down. Take it outside meant you were going to duel with guns, okay? Then we moved into what they call the dignity culture. Ah, that honor thing. People are dying. That's probably not a good thing. Let's move into a dignity culture, okay? So dignity culture is value, uh, the, the characterized by uh, a value on having thick skin. Thick skin. You can take a slight or an offense, no problem. It just rolls off your back like water on a duck. No, you don't worry about it. And if, and if it ever gets to the point where justice is needed, you didn't take care of it yourself. You went to the authorities. You, you'd go to the police. You'd go to the justice system. You'd go through the courts. You'd hire an attorney. That's the way you did it. So that's pretty much gone now, too. Just look at social media. Nobody can take anything on social media without starting a movement, okay? He, they said, now, we live in a culture of victimhood now. Now, listen to what victimhood is characterized by, okay? Characterized by the primary value is on immediate retaliation for any slight or offense, any perceived slight or offense, immediate retaliation but not yourself. Your retaliation is done through authorities, not for justice sake, but for revenge. It's done through authorities and through communities, and here you go, and you do it through strangers via social media. You rally people you don't even know to get on your side to go after the person who's offended you. So what they're saying is there's, there's elements of both honor and dignity culture in this new victimhood culture, but the combination is really destructive. And then they took it one step further. Now, to consider this, this has bred something now that we're, we're in the midst of called competitive victimhood. Well, I'm a bigger victim than you are. No, you're not. I'm a bigger. So now we're arguing over our victimhood. Everyone is vying for a victim. Gee, I'm not a victim. How, how can I be a victim? Now, we don't say that out loud, but that's, that's how this has moved. And since everyone is a victim, the key now is to prove that you're a more, more of a victim than anyone else. Made me, it made me think of, of a guy named Kenneth Burke. I'm in the communication discipline, so I spent years and have spent years studying a guy named Kenneth Burke. He was a, a 20th century um, uh, essayist, literature professor, and, and social science researcher and expert in communication. Anybody ever heard of Kenneth Burke? Okay. Fascinating, fascinating guy. Kenneth Burke, his lifelong research, one of, the, one of the conclusions of his lifelong research is that human beings cannot exist without hierarchy. All this talk that we have about egalitarianism, the truth is, is that all we ever do when human beings get together is we self-arrange into hierarchies. We just do. And now we have a hierarchy of victimhood. We have a hierarchy. So, 
Think about this and the gospel that Jesus came and preached, that Paul teaches in his letters, and that Jesus is actually the focal point, the salvation of this gospel story. Think about how it's different. Jesus says we are to never see ourselves as victims, no matter what happens. And he has a right to say that because he, who was the greatest victim in history? He didn't do anything wrong and he got crucified. Don't see ourselves as victims, but rather we are to see ourselves as ambassadors and disciples. Ambassadors and disciples. Jesus reels us in to love and save and teach us. That's the disciple part. And then he sends us out to tell us others. That's the ambassador part. He says, we're not victims. And he gets, he said, even, even though he tells us, he teaches, that there will be persecution and suffering for following me. You can't be a victim. He simply says, that's a fact of life. And actually, when you're persecuted, when you're oppressed, when you're suffering for your faith, the goal isn't to try to escape it or prevent it, but rather to endure it with long suffering and then to learn from it. To, 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 to allow it to help develop our character. Think about the exile of the Jews when they, when they went to Babylon, when they were captured and they went to Babylon. And Jeremiah writes in chapter 29, okay, you're in Babylon now, you're living, you're no longer the cultural majority, now you're the cultural minority and you're living in captivity and you're being oppressed. And what does Jeremiah say? Get married, have families, work hard. And be a blessing to the people around you, including the Babylonians. Do not see yourselves as victims. That was Jeremiah's message. And this idea of, of being built up through uh, this, this, our trials and tribulations, Paul writes this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope and the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are not victims. One of the things that Campbell and Manning point out repeatedly in their book is that if a person is never challenged, they're saying this is the problem with the culture we live in today. If a person is never challenged, if a person never suffers, if a person never endures tension, that person remains, in effect, an infant. And here you go. And they will never be capable of adding value to anything. Not a family, not an organization, not a business enterprise, nothing. Victims can't add value to anything. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not delegitimizing genuine victims. The problem is everybody's a victim now. So if everybody's a victim, then what? Nobody's a victim. And, and where is this coming from culturally? A lot of it, a ton of it, some would say the majority of it is coming from this movement to construct our own identities. Constructing our own identities. Identity, I got to have an identity. I need an identity. And, and our identities are, are primarily based on race, gender, sexuality, moralism, and activism. And those last two, moralism and activism, we talked about some of those last week from Butler's book. Again, I'll just briefly quote from Butler. 
He writes, where I live, the social benchmarks for moral applause, how I get my identity, have more to do with whether one eats organic, rides their bike to work, or supports the correct humanitarian initiative in Africa. Things like these, even if good things, comprise our contemporary bars of righteousness by which one's social capital, one's identity, is improved. Again, we need to remember that Paul writes emphatically in Romans chapter 12 that in light of the gospel, we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And the reason is because the world and its culture is foolishness that sounds and feels like wisdom. Um, two problems with this construction of identity that have been identified. Number one, part of our desire to create and tout our own identities is that it gives us a feeling of control, a feeling that we get to decide our own destiny, and a feeling that we can ward off challenges, unpleasant tension, and suffering if we can just find the right identity. I just need the right identity and then all my problems will go away. That's one of the reasons, psychologically. Uh, this is one of the reasons this movement is so strong and popular and why it's nearly impossible to discuss it logically with those who are buying into it. It's wrapped up in emotion and affect, what we might identify as the heart. But Jesus says the way to true peace is self and selfless love and victory in this life is to lay down our life and find our identity in him, in Christ, solely. Jesus says that others are going to know us by our love, not our identities. Think about that. It's interesting that one of the major tenets of postmodernism is that we reject labels. We don't want to be labeled. Now think about the irony of this. Yet preening our labels and our identities is exactly what we now value most in our culture, our postmodern culture. That's so ironic. Uh, but Frank, it's cool to be ironic. Okay. Well, Jesus just sets us free from this deception. Secondly, second problem with this is that there is a sense of self-righteousness that comes with constructing your own identity. There really is. Self-justification, self-righteousness. It's hyper-individualism. This is my identity and no one else's. I did this, therefore no one has the right to judge, evaluate, or speak into this identity because it's mine, I created it. Keep your truth and love to yourself. My identity is who I am. I have the authority to do this, and I'm right about it, which therefore makes me righteous. My, and here, here's, here's the best part. My identity may conflict with, contrast, or even um, clash with your identity, but that's your problem, not mine. Well, here's what Jesus says. All authority has been given to me. My word is true. Righteousness is found in me. Isaiah 51, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, you are in Christ. That's your identity. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me. He has given me a new identity 
with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, Paul writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And he's talking about his identity as a Jew and as a Pharisee and as a tribe of, Benj of Benjamin. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Rosaria Butterfield writes it this way. We have both a real identity and a true identity. Our real identity is wrapped up in our sin and pride. Our true identity is in Christ. So? So? Well, it's easy and fun and it makes perfect sense to find our identity in that which we've constructed, that which we're familiar with, and that which we believe will bring meaning and purpose and pleasure, especially since we've created it. And who ought to know better than us in this regard? But if our identity is wrapped up in something we've created, what happens when we're no more? James says that life is like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. And, and this is even worse. What happens when the cultural winds of identity change, and they do all the time without a moment's notice, and suddenly you're left with an outdated, outmoded, useless identity that doesn't measure up to anybody else's identity? What do you do then? That's why we're putting on and taking off identities in this world now, like we're changing socks from Target. The identity that Jesus gives us has never changed and never will. People have been saying for years, and I have often agreed with this until now, people have been saying for years that the gospel is always trying to catch up with the, with the culture. Actually, that's not correct. The gospel has always been what it is, always. And it's perfect and holy and doesn't need to change. The gospel, in a nutshell, is that you and I are broken, sinful beings who are looking for purpose and meaning, and who need redemption, righteousness, and forgiveness. And Jesus, through his sacrificial crucifixion and death-defeating resurrection, gives us all of that. Culture is the one that's been trying to find something better and more meaningful for 2,100 years. Culture is the one that's behind. Culture is the one who's always trying to catch up with the gospel. The church has nothing to be ashamed of in regard to cultural leadership. Certainly, yes, because the church is made up of broken people, we could be better at compassion and mercy and grace and love and serving. We can always do better. But when it comes to truth and reality, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And I know it's hard, it's very difficult today, it seems, to identify yourself as a Christian in the current cultural context. Christians have become sort of the cultural boogeyman and whipping posts of our culture, which, by the way, hello, Jesus said this would happen, so why are we so surprised by it? Okay? But in the midst of that, Jesus calls us to understand that when we're tempted to identify ourselves through anything that the world wants to impose on us or anything we want to impose on others. At, at the very least, that comes in second place to the gospel and our identity in Jesus. We are in Christ. That's our identity. That's where growth and maturity happens. Let's pray together.
Uh, Lord God, we, we thank you for, again for your word and its truth and for um, Paul's diligence and, 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 and filling of the Holy Spirit to write what he has written so that we can study it and be encouraged by it, but also be confronted by and taught by it as well. And I pray as always that, uh, God, you would um, use these words uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd move me out of the way and that your truth would, would shine through. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.